Hello and welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that mum's dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I do know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. I called this podcast after a quote from author and poet Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this, too. My guest today is a woman with whom I felt an immediate connection the moment I started to read her book. Its first sentence speaks of her fear that something is changing about the man she loves. The fear is so great that she doesn't want to think about what might be wrong. She brushes the starker facts under the carpet, which is just what we did with Mum when she first started to act strangely. I think many people do. Nula Suchet's book, The Longest Farewell, is a brutally honest account of what it is to watch someone you love succumb to dementia. To lose a parent to this cruel condition is one thing, to start to lose your husband to Pick's disease, a rare form of it when he is just 57, is another. Nula first met James Black in Kenya when she was the location artist on a series that he was directing. and She was immediately drawn to the tall, charismatic Irishman. Once filming was over, they returned to the UK and were married within the year. It was, Nula tells me, simply meant to be. The artistic, creative couple complemented each other and for several years they were blissfully happy. But then slowly, insidiously, Pick's disease crept into their world, changing both their lives forever. The bastard dementia, as Nula comes to call it, destroys everything. My marriage, my dreams, my finances, even myself. Everything, she writes, is subsumed by the soul-crushing grind of being a carer to the empty shell that is now my darling James. Her story, though, is also a love story. It tells of her tremendous love for James, a love that, despite its best efforts, dementia cannot destroy, and her love for another man who she meets precisely because of James' dementia and who, after James dies, she ultimately marries. So The Longest Farewell is also surprisingly, joyously, a book about hope. So, Nula Suchet, welcome to Well I Know Now. Thank you, Philippa. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me in your lovely Riverside Blast. Gorgeous. First, I'd like you to describe to everybody listening how you met James. Your descriptions in the book were magical. I almost felt I was there with you when you encountered this charismatic <laughs> man. So tell us all about it and how the two of you fell in love. Um, I met James in Kenya. 
I was the location artist for this series he was doing on Early Man with Walter Cronkite narrating. And I arrived on set and was told by his PA to just wear black shorts, black T-shirt, no makeup, and to be on set at five o'clock the next morning. In the evenings, we would all sit down to a lovely meal outside in, in, in tents, in, you know, lit by Tilly lamps and the lovely African mm. stars. And, mm. and, uh, and, and all the people around the table were all experts in their field on early man anthropologists. And Walter Cronkite would narrate his stories and James would narrate his stories. And over the three weeks of filming, I just noticed this lovely tall man with green eyes with a lovely cultural northern irish accent i just fell in like with him i thought he's lovely in his mind everything just reached out to me and i had broken up from a long marriage to a mimetic and i had been on my own for five years so i was just at the right place at the right mm, time mm. to know what i wanted if you like in mm. life rather than you know what mm. i didn't want mm. and that's that's how we fell in like and and we had many many things in common he didn't have children, I didn't have children, so it, it all incredible coincidences. And that's how I ended up falling in love. And he knew I loved Karen Blixen's um, yes. writing, and the film had just come out in 86, so some years before that's that. Out of Africa. Out of Africa, and he arranged for a private tour of her home for oh, me. Oh, wonderful. It was just amazing. And then he arranged for me to have a helicopter right up to the Kenyan mountains. Finch so, Hatton. And, yes, <laughs> yeah, Finch Hatton, exactly. So it, it was all just this magical Yes, sort of meant to be. That it was meant to be, and it was just, everything about it touched my senses. I suddenly realised, that this is what I've I'd always wanted, this closeness to, you know, literature, closeness to um, art, closeness to everything. And, it, and Africa had it. It was the colours, the smells, the textures. You know, we met the Maasai tribe. It was just magical, the whole experience. It just moved me beyond words. Absolutely. And what did you do then? We came back to London and we had to continue the, the shoot in the Chislehurst Caves. I had to do huge drawings of bisons in these caves. And then out of the blue, James came up to me and said, I'd love to take you out for dinner. And we met a few weeks later and we had dinner and we just went from there. Within a year, we married. It was right. an incredibly fast oh, relationship yeah. because I think we both knew we were mm. both at the right age, mm. you know, 40, 42. It was mm. a good mm. good time to know exactly mm. what you wanted. Mm. And we married and, and after that, we had the most incredible life. And we had a very quiet wedding. We went away quietly. And you came back and then you became an interior designer. Uh, well, having, the art world, the as you know, artists. television art world is very sparse. Mm. You know, you get calls to, mm. to do artwork. And I ended up doing interior design, filling in, you know, I did jobs for various design companies. I worked all over the world. I had a great eye for interiors and design, obviously, and I designed wallpapers and I designed also fabrics for various companies. So I was sort of, that's the path I was going down and realised that that was a good path. And with James working freelance as well, it was a good way to increase our income, if you yes. like. Yes. And I, I ended up working all over the world doing interior design. Did you design, design this flat? I did. It's yes, gorgeous, I did. everybody. You can't see it, sadly, for you, but it is the most gorgeous. So you had this lovely life together. You had no children. We had no children, mm. so we just... You the know, two of you? Yeah, just the two of us. Mm. James made his films. He did a wonderful documentary on Eleanor Roosevelt in New York, and we flew to New York, and we lived there for a while, and then he wrote scripts for screenplays, and then we ended up going back to Ireland to do a film that really touched his heart. It was about a Dr. Noel Brown, who was a young Irish man who was incredibly poor. Family were very poor. Parents died with TB. Family were decimated by TB. He survived, was, came to England, got into medical school and became a doctor and wanted to change 
the TB outbreak in Ireland, which was rampant with poverty, etc. So the Irish Film Board commissioned him to do the screenplay. So then he started preparing to do that and casting it with Charles Dance playing Noel and, uh, you know, so it it was all a a, a lovely time. So that was... What was that called? That was called Against the Tide. Right. The film was called Against the Tide. When did that come out? It it hasn't come out at all because it never got made in the end because dementia had come into our lives at that point. And and he was doing other stuff as well. He wrote six one-hour episodes on the life of Mozart and we were in Prague looking at all the places that we could film Mozart's life cheaper than Vienna. Obviously, Czechoslovakia was a lot cheaper, but similar to Vienna. And uh, so with films, they can take years to make, actually, Pippa. And he'd have two or three things going at once, you know. He was incredibly creative. And he went through this incredibly creative spell of, like, five years where he wrote not only the six one-hour episodes on Mozart, but Noel Brown, Against the Tide... He wrote all about money, which was about students who sold their sperm at the London School of Economics to make money to um, fund a a trip to the US to do the uh, Ruth 66 on a Harley Davidson, but a comedy. So he could go from something tragic like Noel Brown to Mozart to this comedy. He was just incredibly, it was incredibly creative. And this was all going on when dementia had actually crept into his life. And I didn't know it was dementia. I just thought he's writing, writing writing why isn't he filming and he was turning down projects he wasn't responding to calls he was just writing and that was the beginning of when I realized yes you say that in your book that it almost became this sort of compulsive it was an obsession obsession he would write into the night Night. he was just write 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 and and but it was brilliant it was literal it was clever it was original and it was just unbelievable that this was coming from someone who was losing his brain and and we didn't know that I didn't know he was had dementia at all at that stage yes yes so that was incredible and you knew very little about dementia I knew nothing about dementia this was the first of the three I asked all my guests yeah and you said the first one was that you really what you'd learnt was you knew nothing about dementia. I knew nothing about dementia. To me, growing up in Ireland was old, old people who were a little bit senile when Mm. they got to 90. Mm. Dementia was not a young person's disease. I'd never heard of it. Never knew anyone in my family or friends or relations who had it even. So I was totally ignorant and oblivious to dementia. Mm. And there were other signs too, weren't there, with James, that something was not right? He was at home a lot, obviously, because he wasn't actually filming. And he would leave food and he would have a meal and everything would be left out and you'd have a a queue of breakfast, dinner, tea all left out and I was gone all day, you know, working, coming back and I'd say, what on earth's going on? And this was also something I began to notice. This wasn't James, you know. He'd forget to shower, you know, which wasn't James. James mm-hmm. would get up in the morning, the first thing he would do is shower yep. and do all that. That wasn't happening. There were mm. lots of little things. But mm. I thought maybe he's stressed, maybe he was so absorbed. Mm. Again, I put it all down to him being obsessed with writing and forgetting, you know, to write. Do you think to... somewhere in the back of your mind you knew something else was going on but you didn't want to confront I, I, you know, I, 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 did, I didn't really, you know... <laughs> Pip, it took me a long time. It took friends and family to say, Nuda, there's something wrong with you. You mentioned this with the dinner yeah. with some yeah. doctor I, friends. I, I, met this, I had this wonderful, wonderful doctor friend who'd retired to Ireland from New York. And we went down to stay with her for the weekend. And she did a fabulous meal for us with a lovely antique white tablecloth. I, you know, that's the only reason I'm mentioning it. It's just, <laughs> and she poured out, you know, she did the roast lamb. And we were all eating. And she was talking to James about films he'd made, etc. And suddenly he, he wasn't able to tell her he was sort of gabbling about what he'd made. It wasn't James who was so articulate. Yes. Suddenly he knocked the wine over, this red wine, onto this white 
beautiful antique mm-hmm. cloth, and she just said, that's fine, fine, fine. Mm. And the next morning she said to me, Lula, I think there's something wrong with James. I think it's mm. something wrong. It's, mm. It might be a, a cognitive, it might be a bleed, it mm. might be mm. a tumour, but mm. I think you must get mm. an opinion. Mm. I really think, having observed him over the weekend, he's not right. And that mm. was the first big alarm yes. that I got that something was really wrong. Yes. And when sort of was this, roughly? That was about 2002, right. 2003, coming in, mm. in, into mm. 2003. Mm. And then she said, I think you should get an opinion. So I went to my local doctor when we got back yes. to Wicklow and the, he said, no, no, there's nothing wrong with James. You know, he he's just needs to get out there and stop writing. He's probably he's suffering from a bit of depression and get him away from that computer, get him out there directing again. It's very common that it's misdiagnosed yeah. as yeah. depression, isn't it? Dimension? He completely dismissed James's, um, you know, uh, and then the next thing, James started complaining about a pain down his left leg, and we went back to another doctor, and he said, no, I, f- I can't find anything wrong with There's nothing in his leg that would cause his pain. So there were lots of things happening in James's world that were telling me something was wrong, but no one was diagnosing it as being wrong. Mm. So again, I just dismissed it and thought maybe, you know, he needs... And he was tall, slim, he wasn't, you know, he was six foot tall, very slim, you know, there was no overweight, there was nothing... No. Never in my years with James was he ever ill. Did he realise anything was wrong? No, had no idea, no idea at all. That was the weird thing, that was the sort of thing that made me think there isn't anything wrong with him because he would know. He would go away then to do the odd film. He was still doing odd things. And he would go away and leave his good watch. He had a really good designer watch that he'd had for years, and that was left behind. He would leave clothes behind. He left his passport on a plane. And lots of these things were happening to make me realise there was something wrong. So you weren't satisfied with the GPs? No, I I, I thought there's something definitely going wrong. And James's ex-wife, Carol, who's Dame Carol Black... She is uh, a very high up in the medical profession. She advises the government and so on, even today. And she and James always had a very good relationship. They parted amicably many years ago, and we always got on really well. I rang her one day and I said, Carol, I think there's something wrong with James. And she arranged for us to see the specialist in Harley Street. So we flew over from in Dublin because we were living there at the time because that's where the film was happening. And we met this pompous consultant in Harley Street who basically asked James spell world backwards, a few other things like that, and said, yes, it's it's dementia. And I said, what? Dementia? Well, what's dementia? He said, it's a form of Alzheimer's. And he knew no more than that. He said, you'll need to get, you know, a second opinion. And uh, that was it. We were dismissed, shown the door, and £200 up front, and that was it, and we left. And, he didn't uh, offer you any support, any advice, any help? Just nothing. He offered us nothing. Even the explanation of it was so sparse. And I was shocked. I remember coming out, walking outside and walking down Harley Street and we ended up in Fortnum and Mason and we went in, in to have a coffee. He never said a word all the way down the road, uh, James. And I was sobbing with dark glasses mm-hmm. on my eyes and I said, you know, I can't, uh, James, dementia. And he said, but I, I've looked after you, darling. You'll be all right. That, that's all he said. I've looked after you. And we got down and when we got to, I don't know, we just walked and walked and walked. We ended up outside Fortnum and Mason and he said, I'm, I'd love a coffee as if... Nothing had been said and we went in and I I organised the coffee for him. I went into the loo and I just sobbed my heart out in front of the mirror and I phoned Carol and uh, she said, look, we'll get a second opinion and don't panic, it may not be that, it may be something else. And then Carol organised for us to see Professor Hodge at Cambridge, at the Addenbrook in Cambridge and then we went to see him and he did all the tests and he was lovely, he was charming. 
and tease James by saying, James, you're in yes, front of the camera yes. and I'm, I'm, I'm behind the camera. And he then spelled it out and said it's temporal lobe dementia and it's Pick's disease, it's specifically yes. Pick's. Yes. And he said there is no cure. Too late for drugs because James has passed that stage when he could have had How old was James? He was only 57 at that time. So, And he looked so healthy, Pippa. He was still tall, gorgeous. The green eyes, you know, were always shining. Mm, and mm, he was just a good-looking mm, man. He mm, just had that mm. lovely look about him. And you just couldn't believe that this person yes. had this alien mm. inside his brain. And mm. th- that's what I call it. And he was still completely unaware. He was still uh, unaware of it and still talking, but talking fairly sort of, you know, sensibly in the sense that he would describe something or tell you something. He was always very articulate, James, you know, mm. he'd been to the London School of Economics, fiercely mm. bright. Mm. And Pick's disease or frontal temporal, it, just I've to explain to people though, yeah. now that you do know, is yeah. a, it's a rare form. It's a very rare of form of dementia. And it will affect sort of behaviour. It, it affects behaviour, emotion, everything really in the end. It's a horrible disease that just creeps mm. into your brain and affects your speech. Mm. Um, One or two other celebrities have had it, haven't they? Yes. Terry Jones has had it. Uh, Terry Pratchett mm. talked about it a lot. Yes. Jackie Stewart's wife, the racing driver's wife, has it now. Yes. So many, many other people yes. have Pick's yes. disease. It's, beginning it's much to get more common. More, yes, yeah. it's beginning to get more yeah. publicity around, yes. isn't it? In, in fact, they're saying now that rare dementia is more common and people just haven't realised it. Yes, it's so I think common. it's probably because it's just being diagnosed yeah. more, isn't it? Yes. Because it's still pretty rare exactly. compared to Alzheimer's. But yes. And, yes, and also uh, I've, I've learned as well that, you know, that not all consultants know about dementias no. and they just give a, a broad diagnosis of Alzheimer's yes. when in fact it is could be specifically yes. rare dementia. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, that's one yeah. of the extraordinary yeah. elements, isn't yeah. it, of how sometimes yeah. the medical profession themselves don't yes. actually know as De- much as a spouse or yes. a relative. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So you were then beginning to go into this terrible... So I came out, he, he then, this lovely, you know, a professor was very, very professional, basically said, there's nothing I can do, there's no cure, there's no hope for James, it's a degenerative disease, he will just deteriorate and it's not a nice journey, especially for the carer. And he just got up and walked us out to this grey corridor and that was it. We had no road map, I had nothing, no sat-nav, as you would say today, to yes. guide me as to where to go or, and I did not know what to do. And again, I just broke down. And I think I probably cried for a week because I thought, what on earth do I do? do. We, we flew back to Dublin. I looked at this lovely man who was still not aware of what had been told to him and I thought, how am I going to deal with this? And there was nothing, there was not one single support out yes. there that I could ring up yes, or say. Yes, one of your big yeah, realisations. One of my big... And also how isolating it was for you. Totally isolating. And just tell us, because I think this is one of the things about your book, you are ruthlessly honest. Yeah. And you talk about, it's a bit later on in the story, but your family's reaction to it, which is the, also... The, Weirdly sort of shocking and understandable. Yeah, yeah. They weren't very supportive in a way because James had been acting strangely for a couple of years. Mm, and they'd, slowly... they'd kind of put it down to, oh, James is just quirky. And then suddenly this dementia word came in. Mm. And really dementia is the outcast of diseases, you know, Pippa, I realised, because it was almost as if they might catch it. Now, mm. they didn't say that, but it was almost like... Gosh, we don't really want to go into that dimension. You sort of want to cross the road to avoid it, Absolutely. don't you? I felt exactly the same before my mum got Yes, it, it, they didn't know what to say. So yes, therefore, they you're avoided of it, yeah, I think. That's right. They avoided me and they would ring up and say, How is James? But after a while, they stopped ringing because dementia is ever ending. There's no end to dementia. So, yeah. And they got on with their own lives. And 
they just didn't understand this dementia, you know, um, disease, because he was still walking around, he was still laughing, he was still doing his thing. You know, it wasn't like cancer where you have a specialist that stays with you, you get support, you have treatment, you have chemo, whatever. There was no treatment, there was no drugs, there was nothing. So they didn't take it seriously. That's you know? the stigma, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. this fear, silence, ignorance, yeah. and it yeah. breeds. I've Abs- written about this quite a lot. It breeds on itself. Absolutely. And this is what, you know, you and I, by yeah. talking out about... James and my mum want to try and break through. Yes. Um, because there still is this ignorance and It's fear. a huge amount of ignorance and it needs to be shouted out that there's a lot people can do. Mm. So then you carried on, though, wonderfully, really, so, but at great cost to yourself, looking after this man you loved. After a week of crying and, and, and banging my head against the wall, thinking, how the hell am I going to get through this journey, I realised that I was on my own with James and I had to either lie down and cry and sob and woe is me or I'd get up and fight it. And I decided I was going to fight the bastard dementia. I thought, I'm going to fight this. This is the man I absolutely love in the whole world. He's the only person that I really ever loved in the whole world. I went to boarding school as, as a very young girl. You're you know, quite I had, a lonely child. It was, I had a lonely childhood. I'm eldest of nine. My mother wasn't terribly, terribly loving. She just wasn't that kind of person. And uh, we had a housekeeper living in and, and she wasn't kind of the full shilling. So we never had that love that you would crave. I did get it from my grandmother who had a farm outside our town and I loved her, but we only saw her in the holidays. So I didn't have that love. And James was the love of my life. He fed all my senses. And here was I with this man, and I knew I was going to lose him. And that was the awful reality of the whole thing. I thought, I'm going to hold on to him for as long as I can in all the ways that we can. So I did, you know, so my job as an interior designer, which took me all over the world and, you know, the UK and Ireland and so on, had to kind of be parceled away. I had to clients are demanding so you couldn't give to them and James and and for a while I did for about two years I carried on trying to juggle James and dementia and clients I thought I can't do any more I've got to now concentrate on James and I did we decided I decided so he was doing no work by this time he was doing nil by now he'd given up the writing he'd given up he was just you know and how long after the diagnosis at 57 was this then this was about two years after the diagnosis Mm -hmm. he he was not he could still you know look at a film but he'd want to watch it over and over again so things were starting to to deteriorate you know he he loved opera he loved tosca and he'd watch it over and over again and sob as he watched it i would ended up taking him with me everywhere as much as I could and then I realised I couldn't and then in the end I decided that it was too much I would just take him to opera houses because he loved opera music yes. was the one thing that he held on to which this was is another one of your uh, learnings yeah. isn't it and of course the same happened with me and my mum that I, music will connect that's right I had no idea the power of music I wish I'd known that but <laughs> so do I yeah and you know we, we went to Milan we went to Verona and he wouldn't understand what was happening in front of him. But the minute we sat in that arena and La Boheme came on, he knew exactly where he was and he would cry and he lost all inhibition and people around him would look at him and, and I'd, I don't care, you know. And mm. I took him to Glyndebourne and that was really awful because the English can be a little bit mm. stuffy and mm. the Italians were much mm. friendlier Absolutely. about it. Yeah. So th- there were lots of moments like that. I basically took him to opera houses all around Prague. I took him everywhere to opera because he loved opera. And I still hung on to him and he would still have this little language that I would understand. You know, he'd, it, it was all jumbled up words, but I would get the gist of it. You know, he would know, I would pick out little meanings in it and that was our connection. Yes. 
And that went on for a long time. And I would take him fly fishing. And my brother was a wonderful fly fisherman. And uh, he had, you know, represented Ireland many times. Where uh, were you doing this? On the west coast of in, Ireland? In the west coast of Ireland. And I, I got him, the Cyril, to take him out on his boat one day. And James was a wonderful fly fisher. You know, he'd, he'd learned to fly fish with Prince Charles's gilly many years ago in wow. Scotland when he was doing, you know, a documentary. Yes. And he would tie the flies beautifully and, and he'd cast out. It was like watching a ballet as he cast out his line and suddenly we're in this boat and he wasn't able to tie the fly, right. he wasn't, you know, everything. And I realised, but I was trying desperately to give him one last lovely yes. moment, you know. I think you were told, weren't you, that there was a sort of period you had yes, in I, which you would be able to I do this, told, so you were determined were, to I was determined to get every last moment, bit that, of that life period. out that would give him something, you know, and even taking him out for, he loved coffee, lovely coffee I would buy, Beautiful coffee, and, and but he, he wasn't tasting anything. He wasn't, in the end, he wasn't doing anything, you know, Pippa. He started to retreat more and more and more into this world of his, and, you know, the speech got more aggressive, and, the, you know, the, he got more impatient. And when I'd invite friends round to the house, you know, for supper, he'd look at his watch and say, it's time, you know, you fuckers left. This wasn't the language no. James would I use. I think this is where also the fear comes from. I've talked to other people about this. Yeah. It's very difficult to deal with because obviously it's the disease, it's not the person. Absolutely. But it's sort it was of un- unsociable yeah. behaviour yeah. and other people don't know how to react no. if somebody starts saying, no. you know, yeah. fucker. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and good old friends, you know, very few would hold on and say, look, we know James and hug him. And, Interesting how but, it sorts the sheep from the land. It really does. Like colleagues, you know, they wafted away quietly because they didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to deal with him. Close friends would say, oh, James, come on, you know, and they would take his insults. He would be really, really rude to people and and, and he wouldn't allow people in. If if I wasn't there, he wouldn't allow them in. You know, they'd call to see him. He was doing all all sorts of strange things. Mm -hmm. And and then he started wearing uh, two ties and... uh, baseball caps and just doing odd things mm. things started to really mm. get out mm. of control that mm. I wasn't able mm. to hold on to him you know that that became quite obvious mm. and then it, it you know that was now we were now five years mm. since the diagnosis mm. in 2004 mm. so I realized I, I wasn't sleeping you know you'd take him out to a little local coffee shop for a coffee he'd knock the coffee over on himself the Cafe were lovely, they knew us, they would understand. He wouldn't let me take the clothes off. He started getting incontinent, he'd urinate any way he wanted to. He was doing all sorts of awful things. Um, you know, uh, there was one particular really bad day we had, and I remember getting back to the flat and he'd soiled himself, and I was trying to undress this six foot man, I'm only five foot three. And he just lashed out, and, and this was not James. He didn't hit me specifically, but he just lashed, pushed me away, and anyway, got him into the shower eventually. and. I just remember getting him out of the shower, you know, and uh, he walked down the corridor and put on clothes, put on a jacket and ties and trousers, being so wet. You know, he was soaking wet. Mm. He wouldn't let me, and just said, go, you know, mm. I'm going to dress myself, put on this shirt, mm. two ties, and got into bed. And we were in, I, it, this was like one o'clock in the morning, and I'm lying in bed mm. in my nightie, and he's dressed in a suit and two ties in bed. It was laughable. You, I laughed. In the end, I just, I thought if anyone saw us, they would just mm. think we were, mm. this is mm. an insane situation. And then friends of mine came and said, Nuri, you've got to do something. You cannot manage James. You're not looking after him properly either because you can't manage him. 
you know, he wouldn't let me change him. All this was going on. He wasn't eating right. He was just doing strange things. So you got to this paper. point that so many people get yeah. to, where you had to take the heartbreaking decision. I had to decide. To put him in a yeah. Care and then home. finding the care home was a nightmare because, as I describe it in, in my book, there were some awful places, you know. And in the end, I Maureen James's lovely younger sister worked for Macmillan in Scotland, and she rang me one day and said, "I found a lovely home in Hertfordshire. I think." He should go there. They do something called speckle, which is a, a language that dementia patients can understand or they can understand them. And I think you should contact them. I did. I went to see them and they came over to Ireland to meet James. And they said, yes, he's at the perfect time because we can get to know him before dementia completely claims him. Yes, of course, of course. And within two months, he went over to this little care home. And for a while, it was fine. You know, I, I drove him over. It was heartbreaking handing him over. And uh, we had one last night in a hotel, which I didn't describe in the book, which was heartbreaking. I, it was all last, last, last. Everything was last, last drive. It's a last. succession of losses, isn't it? Was, it? I've it heard was, dementia yeah, described as that. It was just horrible. And, uh, you know, we eventually got to the home and he thought he was just going somewhere nice. And he smiled and we went in and... Right. And I prepared his room beforehand and we bought this lovely painting in Paris that he loved of three singers playing a violin and hard-up singers, you know. And James was always very fond of the underdog. He always loved... A lot of his dramas were people who'd mm. had hard times and whatever and mm. came out of them. Mm. And, and, mm. and anyway, we mm. bought this painting and I had that in his room and all the little bits he loved, all his Mozart stuff all around, etc. And mm. we went into the room and he, um, I put on Mozart, The Marriage of Figaro, and he started conducting it. He did indeed. And I wanted, in fact, I wanted you to read it, Nuna. Oh, this is a lovely little passage that you wrote in your book when you put on the marriage of Figaro yes. and you're at this heartbreaking moment of taking him to the care home yes. and then James starts conducting and this is what you wrote. Oh dear. Read it out. Yeah. We take him to the care home and I put on the marriage of Figaro, his favourite Mozart opera and James immediately starts conducting the music. I can't breathe. I move to wrap my arms around his body and hold him tight so he can't see me cry. I want to run out of the room with him take him far away from the world of care homes and dementia. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's <laughs> I a, did. It's, yeah, it's I did. always... Sorry, I didn't <laughs> mean to make you cry. No, 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 it's... It's, 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 it's a terribly yeah. difficult moment, that, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was just horrendous. It, it was like, how can I do this? And, and, and I did have to leave and, and go outside and then drive five hours back to Dublin, yeah. I think a part of the grief comes out then. Yes. I think with me and my mum. yes. A lot of my grief came out at that moment when I left her in the care home. We had a very traumatic experience, you're often putting somebody into a care home. And then when I left, and a day or two afterwards, I went to see... My husband took me to the theatre to see uh, an Edward Albee play. And I just found myself in floods of tears. Yes. And this enormous sort of grief hit me. And we only stayed till the interval. He had to oh. take him because I think yes. a big bit yes. of the grieving goes on because you're actually giving yes. up that person. Yes, they're sort of going absolutely. From... Yeah, and you're grieving from the moment you hand them over to. While you have them, you still have them, and you have nice little moments of coffee, lunch, baths. That's fine. But when you hand them over, they're gone, and that's like a death. Actually, Pippa, I found that was like the death. This was the person I loved most in the whole world and I was handing him over forever. He was never, ever going to share a room with me again, share a bed with me again, share a life with me again. It's your husband as well, it's not your mother or father. Exactly, it was the person I I shared everything with and, and that was like a death. And then after that it was all about 
I would go and see him, but he, he was never going to be mine again. We were never going to walk down that road again together. We were never going to have, ever going to go to a, a film together, never going to have a holiday together. It was all the realizations that everything was gone. And that was the death. It, it was a death. And I did cry. I cried were for you on your days. Own? Was anybody there? I, I had a, a lovely friend, Colette, who was, who was with me, and she was very supportive to me. But actually, when he came to England, I had nobody then because I was on my own. We had left England. We'd lived in Ireland for, you know, many years. And in our world, James's world was a very transitory world. You know, you're, you have friends while you're making the film, and then when the film is over, everyone goes away to the next film. So you lose people, you don't hold on to people. And you had very few close, close friends because everyone was getting on with their life. And again, you know, d dementia is depressing. Who wants to go to a care home? Who wants to know, you know? And, and one lovely friend said to me, you know, I'm sick of hearing about dementia. You've got to get on and make a life. James is in a care home now. You must get on and make a life. And I Easy to say. I couldn't accept that. I just mm. thought, no, mm. I, in mm. fact, I wanted Spanny to see love. him more. I wanted to go and spend more time with him. You know, I, I, going to visit him became more important than actually me having a life in a way. So, yeah. Mm. But then, of course, you were visiting James. Yes. And you met Bonnie. Yes, I met Bonnie, who had a room next door to James, and she would wander in and out of his room. In his room, I'd blown up his life in huge, huge photographs all around his room of his life. And Bonnie loved coming into that room. She'd sit on the bed, help herself to his chocolates, look at the photos on the wall and say, nice, lovely, and walk out again. And I got to know her, and she loved hot chocolate, so I would often take James and Bonnie downstairs to the little coffee shop because everything was security. You had to tap in a number to go downstairs. And I'd take them down, and she'd have her hot chocolate, and he'd have his coffee. And neither of them spoke to the other, and I was in the middle, and it was a very strange place to be. But it was as if she was drawn to James, I think drawn to the room more than James probably, because the room had life in it. I had photographs all over the wall that I'd blown up of his, of his life, and he had his books there, and he had music. You know, there was always music. The carers would put on his operas for him, The Marriage of Figaro or La Boheme or La Traviata. There was always music wafting out of his room. So Bonnie, I think, wafted in and out to hear that and, and to be part of it. And eventually, I just wasn't coping. I would leave. I'd arrive in tears and leave in tears. And one day, the manager of the care home decided that she would organise a lunch for the spouses, there weren't many of us. I think there were only four of us altogether who were spouses. Most of the patients were elderly children of elderly parents. Mm. And she organised this lunch. And I'd never met John in the care home, which was extraordinary, even though I... Now, I this was, is John Suchet, Bonnie's husband. Bonnie's husband was, was, yes, you know, John Suchet. And he would obviously come in on days I wasn't there or whatever. And we actually never met. And then the care home manager organised a lunch and... Um, we all gathered around this table and I was kind of fearful of the lunch. I wasn't sure I wanted to be there. It wasn't where I wanted to be. And no one could comfort me really at that time. I was beyond comforting. Mm. But she was jolly and saying, you know, your relations are now in care. You know, they're here. Your parents, your spouses are here. You must make a life. She stressed that, you know, we're, we're looking after them. They're safe. You know, they're well looked after and John was across the table from me and he started talking and he asked me something about James. He said, I, I've got to know James. I often go into his room and we often have a little chat. And They both loved Mozart. Exactly, exactly. So we, we had you know, a connection. Was, there was a, a, a small connection. And then he said to me, you know, Bonnie was the, the love of my life. And the more he talked, the more 
it was like me. It was like he was talking about me. He was lost the love of his life. She was a great passion. He adored her. And, you know, first time understood. ever, somebody understood what I was going through. It wasn't a friend or somebody. It was someone who was going through exactly what I was going through. And I was going to the States the next week. And he said to me, I'd love to email you and got my email. And, and I wasn't that impressed with him to begin with because I was too emotionally down, I think, to pick up on anything. But mm. he, he was much more male-like about it. He said, yes, you know, I adore the ground that Bonnie walks on, but I've accepted she's here. I'll come and see her as often as I can. She'll always be the love of my life. I'll never be able to replace her. All of that was said, but I need to get a life as well. And he'd been offered a job and whatever. So he was getting on with life. I had no job at this stage. So I went away and we emailed each other for about a year. You know, I've been to the home, small talk. He had a house in France, he was going to sell it. He would tell me about going to France. He would been to the opera and this was went on for a year. And then out of the blue, he texts me and one day and said, uh, emailed me one day and said, do you fancy coming to an opera? And he took me to Wagner, Tristan and Isolde, which I didn't really like very much. It was very heavy. I'm more, um, La Traviata is more of my scene. But anyway, um, so we ended up going to the opera and that was pleasant. And, and th- then we went out for a meal. But he spent the whole meal telling me that he wasn't looking for anyone else and that what he had could never be replaced. And I thought, bloody cheek, you know, I'm, you know, so we, we, we didn't have a, a, a good beginning, if you like. But um, I understood ex- exactly what he was saying. So, mm. so that's how our relationship went on for about two years. And then he invited me to Vienna for a weekend, which was a total disaster, because I'd been to Vienna with James on our honeymoon, and it brought back mm. all the memories, and I was just back again to square one. So this life of trying to leave James behind and get on with life... You were wasn't torn, going you were to in work. conflict, It you? wasn't going to work mm. right now. And as lovely as John was and... and trying to be very male-like about it all. I was very female and it wasn't a a romantic relationship. It was a comforting relationship Mm. in a strange way because Mm. we could compare notes and whatever about what was happening. And then he decided to move Bonnie up to her sons. So she left the care home and then James was there on his own, obviously. And he just deteriorated more and more then. But we carried on. We carried on our friendship. We went out for dinner to the theatre, operas, etc. And that's how we, we stumbled through. And then in 2014? The year before, uh, James started to deteriorate and he, he really didn't have the appropriate pain-relieving and symptom control medication. And I begged this GP to help him and he just said, no, you know, he, we had to wait until for God's own time before he could give James anything. And it was horrendous to watch James going down this path but because there is no end-of-life care for dementia. So that was the hard bit. James died on the 4th of October 2014 but by then I had cried I had the grief by then it was a relief that he was gone there was almost joy in me that he was not going to suffer anymore he was not going to be that man walking down corridors not knowing who he was where he was or how he was and we had a very quiet little private funeral we played you know his Mozart of a verum corpus when he when we brought his coffin in. But there was even a, a moment of, of laughter in, in a way because mm-hmm. while we were waiting for the hearse to come in into the little uh, funeral uh, place, this very attractive girl was walking in front of the coffin and I thought James would love that. It was like he put little yeah. things and then it started to rain and it was like the rain. He'd say, this is perfect rain for fly fishing. So even at the end, he was giving me little things to, to laugh about, you yeah. know, yeah, which was quite nice. Oh, so, lovely. Yeah, so, so yes, that was it. And then Bonnie died um, six months later, yeah. And I continued going up to see her as well, you know, because... Yes. 
she was part of yes. my life. Yes, you say at one point that there were four of you. There were four of us in the relationship. This strange dance of I, dementia. That's exactly how it was. You know, I cared as much about her because I got to know her. Mm. And when I would come into the care home, you know, when she was beside James, she would not let anyone bath her, but she'd let me bath her. Amazing. It was a strange relationship mm. I had with her. And then I was having this friendship with John. Mm. It was a weird, it was a, a dance, dance of strangeness. Yes, yeah. yes, I thought yeah. it was a very good way of yeah. putting it. And then finally, we could actually, you said, Nuna, we could sit here all day and all night, I think, talking. But you say that you changed as a person. Yes. And actually, maybe for the better. I did, yes, I did. I I think I I changed from, completely. It it was like James's journey gave me huge uh, security in the end. It was a a strange contradiction, having lost him. I lost the only secure thing Mm. I ever had in my life. But... He's, it was almost like his journey had built bricks of confidence in me and made me realise that I wasn't mm-hmm. the insecure child mm-hmm. as I looked back on my life mm-hmm. in boarding school and my convent and so on, mm-hmm. and that I was a good person and, and, and he'd, he'd given me lovely layers and I was talented and, mm-hmm. and I had so much in me and I had so mm-hmm. much life left. You know, he was almost like shouting at me to get on and make that life, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think I wrote the book. I started to write the book. It was like the words just came and I thought, I have to write this down. And and I had never, never, ever, ever written anything. I was an artist. I sculpted, mm-hmm. I painted. Mm-hmm. I, But I'd never, you know, written anything. And suddenly these words were gushing out and gushing out. So out of this journey has come incredible confidence, security, Love. James taught me so much on that journey, or the dementia journey taught me so much, because I met other people and it was a whole, we were a family, but we weren't connected because no one knew how to connect then. Now it's changed. I mean, now you can pick up the phone and ring Alzheimer's, you can reach out to rare dementias, you can, but none of that was there. So my passion now is to get out there and get as much help out there and make dementia not the, yes, it's a dreadful thing to happen, but once it's happened, Let's deal with it. Let's support the families. Let's let's make this journey joy so that you've got something to remember them by, not just the gloom bits, you know. Nula, thank you very, very much. That was wonderful. You were so open as you are in your book. It was fantastic. And I think this man, James, who, as you said earlier, fed all your senses. I think he continues to feed all your senses. Thank you, Pippa. Thank it you wonderful. so much. Thank you. Thank you, Pippa. And so, in 2016, Nula and the broadcaster and journalist John Suchet married. What a wonderful woman she is. Her book, The Longest Farewell, published by Seren Books, is available on Amazon. And you can find support for Pick's disease and other rare forms of dementia at www.raredementiasupport.org. And of course, as ever, there is www.alzheimer's.org and www.dementiauk.org to whom you can also turn for support. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.